There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, last week we discussed how a mutual fund works, the difference between it and an exchange-traded fund or ETF. And that's a question we get all the time, isn't it? Well, more and more these days because certainly the the growth in the ETF side of the investment fund business has really been tremendous. Yep. And you had a good analogy. You described the difference between a mutual fund and an exchange-traded fund as the difference between what? A hardcover book and a paperback. Right. So the same words inside, just the packaging is slightly different. Exactly. Yep. But it got us thinking, why not do a mini-series on investing basics, revisiting some of the key themes around investing? Because Greg, we've been hosting this podcast for well over a year now. We've covered a lot of topics. That's for sure. Yeah. It's time has gone by quickly, actually. Yeah, and as we're in the summer here, and I hate to say it, but we're looking forward to September and back to school and things like that already, we plan on running five to six episodes of this Back to Basics mini-series, which should align with kids going back to school in September and, Greg, people just getting more learned. Exactly. Is learned a word? Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. So to kick it off, we're going to tackle arguably the most important item when it comes to investing, and that is the importance of asset allocation. Yeah, right on. And and I think as most of our clients know that when we when we sit down and, and talk to them, we identify the fact that there are very few things in investing that we can control. I mean, you can't control the how the stock markets or the bond markets perform. You can't control what countries are going to do. You can't control certainly whether or not a global pandemic is going to occur out of the blue. You mean like the year before we weren't saying with the upcoming global pandemic? Exactly. Yeah. But there are a few things we can control and and it all has to do with controlling risk. So we can all control the risk in our own portfolios. And so we can choose to take on more risk or less risk. That's entirely within our abilities. And so that's really what we suggest people focus on. Focus on the things that we can control and, and then the rest will just happen. And so the first thing we can control and the most important decision that investors make would be regarding their asset allocation. And so when you think about it, being invested in a market, whether it's a stock market or a bond market or whatever, there's certain risks that are just inherent in being invested in those markets. And that's what we call systematic risk. Okay, and then the systematic risk, you know, that affects stocks and bonds and so on. But that just exists. And so, so what we want to do is we want to say, well, look, different asset classes carry different systematic risks. For example, stocks may have higher risk or volatility. When we talk about risk, here we're talking about volatility, than would bonds. And so asset allocation, it really allows us to determine how much overall risk we want to take with our portfolio. Right. And so that's where we get to decide about how much of our portfolio we want to have invested in each asset class, whether it's stocks, bonds, cash or cash equivalents, or other alternative investments. So let's move on from there. 
Okay, well, let's talk about the basics of asset allocation. The specific claims vary, Greg, but financial professionals in general sort of have this claim that more than 90% of the variance of a portfolio's return is directly attributed to the asset allocation, right? So just that mix of how much is in stocks, how much is in bonds and other asset classes. This assertion stems from studies by somebody named Brinson, who studied this back in 1986. And he states, and I quote, investment policy dominates investment strategy, explaining on average 93.6% of the variation in total plan return. So this conclusion, Greg, has caused a great deal of confusion and debate in academic and financial communities. And we hear it all the time, right? But what the Brinson study explains is that more than 90% of the variability of a portfolio's performance over time is simply due to how it's constructed, its asset allocation. And in measuring the relationship between the movement of a portfolio and the movement of the overall market, and that gets back to what you were talking about, systematic risk versus non-systematic risk, right? right. So systematic risk, just the risk of being invested. Because things happen when you're invested, like global pandemics happen. Sure, exactly. Right? But he finds that more than 90% of the movement of one's portfolio from quarter to quarter is due to market movement of the asset classes in which the portfolio is invested. So just what I said, right? And if you think about it then, so if 90% or more, in fact, his study 93.6, is due to the asset allocation decision then what does that mean for the other remaining 6 or 7% of the variability? Where does that come from? It comes from market timing or stock, some selection. stock selection, things that are outside of that, that big asset allocation decision. So when you think about it, you know, yeah. you could spend a whole lot of time on stock selection or market timing to affect 6% of the portfolio, or you could spend a lot of time on asset allocation and take care of that 90, 93, 94. One of those numbers is bigger than the other one. Exactly. A lot bigger. <laughs> so there are criticisms to the Brinson study. So there were some other academics that said, look, its results are based on bull and bear markets, which explain most of the variation in returns. In other words, a rising tide raises all boats. You've heard that saying before. I think I you've have. used it before. Sure. Yep. Right? And they assert that perhaps maybe the study doesn't ask the right question, that a more appropriate question would be one that probes the difference in return between funds. So there's academics that argued that Brinson is asking the wrong question and they feel the most relevant question pertains to the relationship between asset allocation and returns, not volatility. Right. That's kind of a head shaker, head scratcher, I should say. But what are the implications for an individual investor in the study? And what I'm quoting here is actually some work by a guy named Ibbotson who looked at the impact of asset allocation policy on balanced mutual funds and pension funds. And we can extrapolate from the study that for the long-term individual investor who maintains a consistent asset allocation and leans towards just being invested in the market, whether it be in index funds or just broadly based funds, asset allocation, what Ibbotson says, determines, guess how much performance, Greg? You tell me. About 100% of performance. So whether it's 93.6% or 100%, whatever, that's, those are big numbers, right? Right. So regardless of whether one is measuring return variability across time or return variation between funds or return amounts. So in summary, from these studies, the impact of asset allocation on returns depends on an individual's investing style. So just what you talked about. So if you're a long-term passive investor, well, asset allocation is by far your most important decision, 
right? If you're a short-term investor who trades more frequently, investing in individual securities and trying to practice market timing, then asset allocation has less of an impact on returns because, well, there's just lots that can happen in the short term, right? And you can get it right. Absolutely. You know, in the short term. You could get it right till you got it wrong, actually. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, that's right. You know, and there you're talking about, you know, if people are choosing to invest or like if they're high frequency traders or day traders and they're, for the most part, they're not making an asset allocation decision. They're deciding to be 100% invested in stocks. So they've actually abandoned the first, you know, sort of key tool that we have to control risk, which is asset allocation. And so they've decided in a sense that we're going to go 100% risky or at the risk of using the riskiest asset class, which would be stocks. But then they're looking for market timing and stock selection to try to increase their returns. Sounds like gambling. Well, it's, it's a little bit harder because you take a little bit of the, of the systematic risk, which is a positive, right? Systematic risk is both positive and negative, but it can be positive. Yeah. But you might actually take some of that out of the equation if you're not being consistently invested. Some might say, well, yeah, but why do we even want things that are volatile in our portfolios? But you need volatility in order to have return. Right? That's right. So you need that systematic risk of being invested in things that have higher expected returns because they have higher volatility. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the only thing without volatility typically would be cash investments. And of course, at today's cash rates, 0.2% or something, yeah. it doesn't help people for the most part achieve their financial goals. So let's talk about what it means in English. In English, what I like to equate asset allocation or that asset allocation decision to is like a recipe, like baking a cake. I've used this analogy before. You know, in order to bake a cake, you got to have the right amount of ingredients in order for it to be successful, right? In order for the, I don't know, the cake to bake, right? Of course. And to taste good. And asset allocation is kind of the same thing. You have to have the right amount of stocks, the right amount of bonds or whatever the other asset classes are in there to get your desired outcome. But each of those asset classes on their own in the asset allocation decision are different. Just what we talked about. Some have more volatility than others. So the less volatility in the portfolio, the less expected return is over long periods of time, right? The more volatility, the more expected return is over long periods of time. I think that's a pretty fair statement to make, right? And it's because of the different expected rates of return between those asset classes. So I hope that those who have been listening to our podcasts over the last year and a bit kind of get that relationship of risk and reward that you can't have things like no risk and high reward. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And that's not what capitalism is all about. I mean, capitalism rewards investors who provide capital and the riskier the venture, the higher expected return those investors are, are seeking. Exactly. But on the other hand, taking on more risk doesn't always align with any form of guaranteed higher returns. You might just be taking on more risk, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Especially in your time horizon. So what you pointed out or what we talked about is if you're day trading, you're taking on a lot of risk. Greg, are we recommending people day trade? No, we're not, Colin. But I did want to mention one thing though, and that is that You know, when we talk about asset allocation, there is no right asset allocation. Like some investors may choose to be 100% invested in stocks. And so their asset allocation mix is 100% stocks, zero cash, zero bonds. And that may be totally appropriate. For example, if somebody has a large pension and essentially they're receiving guaranteed income for the rest of their lives and possibly the rest of their spouse's lives, then they may not need 
to have fixed income in their portfolio. And they may be able to withstand the volatility that you'd get with a 100% stock portfolio. So again, we're not saying that there is one right asset mix for everybody. In fact, the asset allocation has got to be appropriate for each individual investor, not only to, you know, sort of align with their goals of their plan, you know, as we've talked about in the past, but also with their ability to withstand the volatility, just the emotional stress of, of being in a, a highly volatile investment portfolio. So again, the key thing is asset allocation is a determinant of variability of returns and of the actual returns. And then the exact asset mix that's right for you is, is right for you based on a number of other factors. Well, and based on the planning that you've done to figure out what is the right asset allocation for you. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because for our example's sake, Greg, let's assume that we've got somebody that doesn't have a pension that funds all of their expenses. And let's just talk about general rules of thumb. So general rule of thumb for asset allocation mix might be your fixed income should be somewhere close to your age is one that is commonly That's thought common. of, yeah. right? So in other words, the older you get, the more fixed income you should have because your time horizon changes, right? Exactly. So expected rates of return for fixed income are obviously lower than stocks, but they protect you during sell-offs. Can you think of any recent sell-offs that we've lived through? Well, let's see, maybe back in March of 2020 when stocks went down 35% and government bonds skyrocketed in value. Yeah, so that was a risk return trade. So people were selling stocks because they were scared, to be quite frank, and buying bonds for safety. But anybody that had those bonds going into that sell-off, well, they did better than if you had all stocks, right? So this same trade has occurred in all major crises since I've been working professionally and you've been working professionally, right? Like it's just always worked out that way. Sure. So the expected rates of return for stocks is higher, but bonds will actually protect you in a sell-off. Now, there are various factors of return within the stock market. And we've spent some time on those in past episodes, and we're going to talk about them specifically in one of the episodes for this mini-series. So I'm not going to spend any time on them today. But for today, we're only going to talk about stocks as represented by our model portfolios. So Greg, you know that we run model portfolios that range in asset allocation from 80% in bonds and 20% in stocks, all the way to... 20% in bonds and 80% in stocks and everything in between, right? And if, if you had to describe why the difference or the different levels of those models, what would you say? Well, just whatever's appropriate for the client based on their, on their plans and their goals and yeah. the amount of volatility they want to take. Right, because that decision of asset allocation is based on, the, as we talked about, the planning that goes into determine, well, how much risk they actually need to take on to achieve their goals. And each person's goal is specific to them. So, the, so Greg, the planning has to be done first, right? Exactly. But the decision is not static, as I mentioned, because as we get older or things change in our lives, we might have to adjust our, our asset allocation, meaning that you know, when we're younger, we can, in theory, recover from major market corrections more so than when we're older, and it's just because of a different time horizon, right? Right, exactly. So I always described it when my grandpa was still alive is my portfolio is actually the same holdings as my mom's portfolio and the same holdings as my grandpa's portfolio, just our weightings were different. Right, right? exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So let's just talk about what those basic asset classes are. Now, Investopedia has listed seven different asset classes or basic asset classes. And I, I, would, I would think these are pretty well known, but equities or stocks fixed income or otherwise known as bonds, 
cash and cash equivalents, which you talked about earlier, real estate, commodities, futures, and other financial derivatives. Those are all examples of asset classes out there, right? Yep, exactly. So for our discussion today, we're only going to focus on three. We're going to focus on cash, bonds, and stocks. And again, let's talk about them like a recipe to bake a cake. So we have to have the right amount of each ingredient in order to have that successful outcome. So I did, I looked at our model portfolios and they, as I said, they range from 80-20 to 20-80 and everything in between. And I looked at how they did over the last one, three, five, and 10 years. So Greg, over the last one year return period, which one year numbers, what's the significance of one year numbers? Is there any? Well, I wouldn't think so. You know, one year is not a long time and particularly in, in years that are so volatile as 2020 was with the the big downturn in, in March, it does tend to distort the one year numbers, yeah. right? So if you're measuring, for instance, against a time period just after the, the big correction, well, then of course the numbers today are going to look fantastic, but yeah. they're nowhere near repeatable, you know, on an ongoing basis. So certainly the longer time horizon you can look at, the more realistic those kind of numbers are. Right. But just for, I don't know, argument's sake, let's look at the one-year numbers on our models because anybody that was invested in what we would call a conservative portfolio, which was 80% invested in bonds and 20% invested in stocks, actually had a pretty good one-year number, Greg. Do you know what that number is? I do because I'm looking at it. (laughs) What is it? It's 9.66%. 9.66%. And that's without taking on a whole bunch of market risk, right? Right, exactly. But if you look at that number over a five-year period, that model portfolio did 4.27% per year, right? So it just highlights the difference between one year and five year or more. Now, if we look at somewhere in the middle, our balanced portfolio, which is 50% stocks, 50% bonds, what's that rate of return over a one-year period? 19.35%. Now, if somebody came in and complained that they got 19.35% over the last year, I might have a problem with that. <laughs> but as you say, that one year is a skewed number. Over the five years, it's done over 5% per year. So it is a pickup in return from 4.27 to 5.17, but it's not as obvious as the one-year number, right? That's right. And if we look at the our most aggressive model portfolio, which is 20% invested in bonds and 80% invested in stocks, that one-year number, it looks pretty healthy. It does. Can almost 29.7%, almost 30%. We, we can year. call that 30, can't we? Okay, we'll call it 30. 30% yeah. in one year. That's a pretty darn good year. Yeah. But again, over the last five years, it's done 6% a year. Yeah. Right? And I think that's the thing. So when you when you look at, you know, one-year numbers can be very skewed because of the volatility in any particular year. But the longer the time horizon, the more those things get smoothed out. Yeah. And so then if you compare the the 80% bond portfolio to the 80% stock portfolio over 5 years, 80% bonds did 4.27 as we talked about, and 80% stocks did 5.99. So that's a pick of about 1.7% or so per year. Per year. That's the important part is that exactly. that's a compounding difference. Exactly. Right? So it's not that our conservative portfolio or in general, our 80% bond portfolio did 4.27% over the last five years. It did 4.27% per year for five years. Exactly. Right. And compounding is a pretty important thing in investing, isn't it? It's one of the most important things. Right. 
So obviously lots of variation on portfolio returns based on the asset allocation model that's selected. And remember, these models own the same positions. They're just in different weightings. But I have to caution everybody, don't put the cart before the horse. Because if you just looked at those things, if somebody just came in and said, how did your models do last year? And we showed them the returns. Which one are they going to gravitate towards? Typically the one with the highest return. Of course, we're all human. We've got a greed factor built in that says, well, why would I take one with less return, right? I mean, why not take the one with the higher return? But these models have to align with your goals. And if they don't, you're in the wrong model, right? Or you've got just your goals. Exactly. Yeah. So we don't want to put the cart before the horse. You shouldn't really pick your asset allocation before understanding how much risk you need to take to meet your goals. And it can only be done through some financial planning. So if you don't need to take on more risk, then don't. And how many times have we had in the years done planning for people and it showed that they actually had enough money to fund their life just as is, and they actually didn't need to take on any market risk whatsoever? Most people don't accept that either, right? No. And and I think for a lot of people, it's like, well, I need either uh, I need to stay ahead of inflation. And so you need to make 2% or whatever the number is just to keep ahead of inflation. And so you're not, you're not falling behind and just a desire to actually earn money on your savings, you know? And so I think it's very difficult for people to accept zero return, but I think what you find is, and people that are, you know, that are lucky enough to be, to own, you know, securities or, or wealth of half a billion dollars, for the most part, they don't take a whole lot of risk unless they happen to be tech entrepreneurs. (laughs) Trying to get into space. Exactly. Yeah. And it becomes more a matter of protecting it rather than growing it. Yeah. And I want to just highlight that part just for a second, because the flip side to that is we've had people that have been referred to us over the years. Like I had a dentist years ago who was referred to us. He came in, his portfolio was $400,000, which actually didn't quite meet our minimum, but whatever we taught, you know, wanted to do some planning with him. I said, well, how much are you expecting to earn every year on this $400,000? Do you know what he told me? $100,000 a year. So he said, what do you think? And I said, well, what are you going to do after year four? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you're spending $100,000 a year and you're starting with $400,000, you're going to be out of money in four years. So what are your your plans after year four? It wasn't the answer he was looking for and he decided to go elsewhere. But, you know, so the point I'm trying to make, if... If you need to take on lots and lots of risk to meet your goals, like more risk than you think is reasonable, you might want to adjust your goals, right? So Greg, let's just wrap up this section here with one final statement. Am I recommending our model portfolios if they match a potential client's asset allocation based on the goals identified in their financial plan? Of course you are. Of course. Why wouldn't we? We're biased. (laughs) We think we do a good job. Exactly. Right? Well, let's spend a few minutes now talking about diversification, which is a little bit, it's sort of like the asset allocation discussion, but just a little bit more detailed. So I talked about asset allocation being, you know, kind of like the first tool, you know, in our toolbox as a way to control risk in the portfolios. And I now want to talk about sort of the second key element of risk control or risk management that we use, and that's diversification. And so in the case of asset allocation, we talk about reducing risk by including a number of different asset classes in the portfolio. And so what that does, obviously, by adding any other asset class to a stock portfolio, it reduces risk by diversifying those asset classes from each other. So now when we talk about diversification, we're talking about diversifying within each asset class. 
Okay, so within stocks. Because we've we already addressed the asset allocation piece, right? How exactly. much you need stocks, how much you need bonds, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're saying within stocks. Within stocks, how do you diversify and reduce risk? Yeah. And, or I should say, how do you reduce risk? The answer is diversification. So, <laughs> so let's talk about that. So what is it? You know, and, and we all grew up with the old adage, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, which is, a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty brilliant concept when you think of it. You know, the concept being if you drop the basket, you break all the eggs. But if you have a number of baskets, then even though you may drop one, you're not going to break all the eggs. Right. So diversification, what we're trying to do is smooth out what we call unsystematic risk events in a portfolio. Okay, so so the positive performance in some of the investments may neutralize negative performance in others. Okay, so we talked about systematic risk. That's just the risk of being invested in an asset class like stocks. Unsystematic risk is risk that comes from being in a type of stock that experiences a bad result, even though it's still a stock. So the stock market may be doing well, but a particular company may fall on hard times. Or you might find out that the particular company is actually a fraud or, or some other such thing. Well, let's, let's just spend a minute on that. Unsystematic risk today could explain GameStop. Sure it could. Right? Yeah. And it just so happens that most of the risk in GameStop has been positive for many people who bought GameStop when it was trading at 4 or $5 a share, and it's now worth $100 and whatever ninety dollars a share, yeah. whatever it might be. However, there are people that paid as much as four hundred and sixty dollars for GameStop shares, and they're now down, you know, two thirds or three quarters. And so that's unsystematic risk because during the time that GameStop both went up and went down, the overall market was doing relatively well. So that kind of highlights the difference between unsystematic risk and systematic risk. So why would you want to diversify? Again, it's to not only smooth out those risks, to ideally totally eliminate unsystematic risk. Because in a sense, what you can do, like unsystematic risk is the risk we just talked about. The, it's sometimes called specific risk. So the specific risk of being invested in a company or, or a sector of the economy that experiences a bad time when other, the rest of the market is doing fine or the rest of the economy is doing just fine. So we want to we want to do that by including many, many, many securities, right? So if you own one security, one single stock, you obviously have a massive amount of specific risk. If you own 50 stocks, you have significantly less specific risk, right? Now, if you look at the markets, though, the market might include anywhere from 600 stocks, or it might include 3,000 or 4,000 stocks like the U.S. And so... While a 50-stock portfolio is better from a diversification standpoint than a one-stock portfolio, a 2,000-stock portfolio is even better because you're virtually eliminating all of that specific risk. Now, within stocks, though, like so just thinking about stocks, there's a lot of ways to diversify. And so you can diversify just by owning more stocks. But the thing is, you also want to include more different stocks. So, for example, one of the earliest ways of diversifying stocks was by doing it geographically. So, you know, as Canadians, we tend to own a lot of Canadian stocks, whether owning them directly or in a, in a fund of some kind. But it's a big world out there. Canada represents only 3% of the world's stock market capitalization. And so if you only invested in Canada, you'd be limiting yourself to 3% of the world's opportunities in stocks. No. And so you've got the rest of the world out there. The U.S. is probably 54, 55% of the world. And then the balance is made up of 
international stocks and emerging markets. You know, and there's a lot of reasons for owning all of those. For example, I just took a quick look at returns for two different decades for the Toronto market. So the Canadian stock market, the U.S. stock market is measured by the S&P 500. And the international stock markets measured by what they call the EFI index, which is just everything outside of North America. And it's interesting. You look at the period from 2000 to 2009, very good year for Toronto or for Canada, 5.6% annually during that period compared to the U.S. market, which is actually down to 0.9% during that time per year. Per year, I was just going to say. Per year for 10 years. Yeah. And the international markets, in fact, were down 1.7% per year for that entire time. Jeez. Now, if you looked at that, you might say, well, you know what? Why would he ever own anything other than Canadian stocks? They did so well. In the subsequent 10 years, from 2010 to 2019, the Canadian market did 6.9% per year, still pretty good. The U.S. market, 13.6%, double what the Canadian market did. And the international markets, 8.3%, again, compared to Canada at 6.9%. So going into each of those decades, nobody had any idea of how things were going to perform. You know, you just had to make your bet. And, and so you could make a bet, and if you bet on Canada for the first 10 years, you would have been right. But you would have had to then make a switch in 2010 to bet on the U.S., or else you would have been wrong. And so our approach is really to say, look, I'm not going to be exactly right, but I'm going to cover all these bases. I'm going to be well diversified across geographies. And that way I don't really care which geographic area does the best because I'm invested in all of them and I'm going to benefit from all of that. I'm spreading my risk. That's all. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So one other discussion that I'd like to revisit and, and one we've had before is this concept of the get rich versus lose everything portfolio. You know, and we've talked about that before, and and it's just the concept of holding concentrated positions. So if you own any individual stock, there's really two extreme outcome possibilities for that. The stock could actually go to infinity. It could be the best stock in the world, and you could obviously get very rich. Or it could go to zero. And we're not saying that stocks go to zero very often, but in many cases they can lose 80-90% of their value, and we watch that happen with energy stocks during the pandemic. Well, I was just going to say, when you talk about diversification and owning more than one thing, unfortunately, some people feel they're diversified if they own multiple stocks in the same sector. Exactly. And that is the energy market in Alberta and Canada. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so in a sense, a sector, because it is kind of a defined part of the economy, many stocks within the sector all tend to behave the same way. And so if you only own stocks in one sector, and it doesn't matter whether it's energy or financials or, or anything else, if you only own those kinds of stocks, then it's almost like owning a one-stock portfolio. Yeah. It's just a one-sector portfolio. But again, the extreme possible outcomes are lose everything or get rich. And when we diversify, what we're basically doing is we're limiting the outcomes, limiting the potential outcomes. So there's certainly upside potential, and we know that just the stock markets in general, regardless of any other kind of stock picking, but just being invested in the markets, has provided very nice returns over 100 years now. But they also have never gone to zero. And so by having a more diverse portfolio, yes, you may not get rich, you may not hit the 10-bagger that people want, but you also won't lose everything. And so it's just a much uh, a much more controlled set of outcomes. 
You had a saying that you had written down here from Carl Richards. Yes. Yeah, Carl Richards. He says, you know you're diversified when there's always something in the portfolio to complain about. And, you know, and that's, and that's the thing about diversification. You're never going to get every element completely right. And that's the point of it. So that's the good thing. And another uh, renowned financial historian and economist, Peter Bernstein, in an interview said, diversification is an explicit recognition of ignorance. And again, that's not an insult. It just says that nobody is knowledgeable and can accurately predict the future. And so you diversify. And you can diversify it in a number of ways. So we talked about geography. We talked about sector. You can also diversify by market capitalization. And all what that means is certain stocks have a massive market capitalization, meaning the market value of all their shares outstanding are huge. You know, they could be tens of billions of dollars or more. This is like Apple, Tesla, Microsoft, yeah, right. those types yeah. of things. And, yeah. and companies, I think, are getting towards that $1 trillion mark, some of the big ones. Whereas there's lots of companies that have a very small market capitalization. And you'll sometimes hear those talked about as large cap, which is just large capitalization or small cap. But by having both types of companies in a portfolio allows you to participate in different market cycles. And we're going to talk about those factors of return in another episode in this mini-series. Absolutely. And other ways are just relative price. You know, is the price high relative to certain fundamental ratios like price to earnings or price to cash flows or whatever? Or is it low? And so there's a number of different ways to diversify stock portfolios. Bond portfolios, the same thing. You could buy bonds issued by governments or you could buy bonds issued by corporations. Or credit quality. So how credit-worthy is the issuer of that bond. Is it a a high-quality company that's been around for 150 years, or is it a relatively new company or a company that's run into trouble? So again, the key thing is there are many ways to diversify a portfolio, and the more we can diversify, the more we can control the risk. Right on. Exactly. Do you want to get into how diversification impacts portfolio returns real quick? Well, sure. You know, and as we talked about the Carl Bernstein quote, you know, there's always something to complain about. Basically, diversification averages out returns. So, you know, some of the holdings are going to be the best performing, you know, assets or best performing stocks or sectors, but they're also going to be some poor performing sectors. And so there will be an averaging and you're going to do better than the worst and you're going to do less well than the best. But so it averages out the returns, but it also averages out the volatility of returns. And so you end up with kind of a smoother ride, just the way we talked about asset allocation. Mm -hmm. By including bonds in a stock portfolio, you smooth out the volatility. The other thing is, you know, if you have a relatively smoother ride, you're more likely to maintain a long-term strategy if you have lower volatility because it's, it's easier on the nerves and it's something that people can understand and, and be prepared for. Mm-hmm. And again, so less diversified portfolios have the potential for more volatility and therefore the potential for people to lose, lose faith in their investment strategy over time. So that's it. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. Everything you need to know about diversification, do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we had a note here from the first time we did this, it was about and I'm reading it right here, pizza chains. Why do pizza chains or pizza restaurants offer more than just cheese pizza? Yeah. Well, why do they? Well, people might not want just cheese pizza. Yeah. So I yeah. like pepperoni. <laughs> 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 kind of shooting themselves in the foot if all that they offer is one thing, right? Exactly. So why should, you know, I guess to summarize, your portfolio shouldn't just have one thing in it or one theme. It's got to be diversified and you need to really focus back on your asset allocation, right? 
Exactly. And the, and the good news is for investors out there is that there are, while diversification can seem complex, there are very simple ways to execute and implement a well-diversified portfolio. Right on. Well, listen, next time we are going to get into market timing and stock picking, I believe. Right on. So yeah, that will carry are, on with that. Yeah. Those are fun conversations because they're among the, they are far and away the most frequent conversations we have with clients. The most frequent conversation to which we just pointed out only attributes to less than 7% of your portfolio's variation in return. Exactly right. Interesting. All right. Well, till next time. Right on. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.